Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is part 33 in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're watching this on YouTube, I do want to begin by apologizing for what you see going on here with my eye. I just had to have eyelid surgery to get a really major sty removed, and if I had been recording this a few days ago, my eyelid was actually swollen shut. And so, I actually had to wait a little bit before I could even record this video because I didn't want it to be too distracting, and so I'm actually a little bit behind schedule from where I would like to be, but I just wanted to explain that, so if you're wondering what's going on with my eyelid over here, that's all it is. Nothing major to worry about. It is all taken care of. That being said, let's actually get to what we're talking about today. And if you've been tracking with this study for any amount of time, you're not going to be exactly surprised by what I'm doing today, because what I want to do today is I don't actually want to cover any new material. I actually want to look back at the stuff that we've covered so far. And I know it might get kind of aggravating that I do this a whole lot, but believe me, I have reasons for doing it. And there's really three main reasons why I want to do this, right? The first reason is because from my own personal experience, I've noticed that Whenever we study the Bible, and this is just seems to be true both on an individual and communal level in the church, a lot of the times, whenever we handle narratives, we do a very poor job of reminding ourselves that these individual stories that we find in narratives are part of the argumentation of a broader book, right? So whenever we're reading like the epistles or when we're reading wisdom literature, we recognize that those books have one clear argument, right? Whenever we're looking at the book of Romans or Galatians or Ephesians or 1 Peter or 2 Peter, or whenever we go to the Old Testament and we're looking at Ecclesiastes or Song and Solomon, we do a very good job of realizing that the author composed this book because they were trying to argue something in particular, and we do a better job of actually tracing that argument. But whenever we encounter narrative books, whether it be First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, whether it be Genesis, or whether it be books like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, a lot of the times what we do is we study the individual passages in those stories, and we learn lessons from those, but we forget the fact that these authors took those individual stories and they collected them together into books. And the authors had purposes for how they structured those books and they had beginning, middle, and end. And I think a lot of the times we just kind of forget that. And so whenever we look at the stories in Genesis, we're very good at understanding those stories individually, but we oftentimes forget how they're connected as a whole, right? What is the message of Genesis? We do the same things with the Gospels. And I think it's even more dangerous with the Gospels because we have to realize that if you only treated these stories individually, then why do you need four different Gospels? Because a lot of the Gospels record the same stories. But the thing that sets these stories apart in the Gospels is that the books themselves are structured differently. And so one reason I like to look back at what we studied so far is because I don't want us to lose sight of what Matthew is trying to accomplish in his gospel, right? Because if we understand that, we'll understand what sets Matthew's gospel apart from Mark or Luke or John, right? And so that's one reason I want to do this is because I think it's very helpful for us to just understand the big picture because if we understand the big picture, it'll help us understand the more in-depth stuff even better. So that's one reason. A second reason is because I don't know if every single person who watches these videos has been with us this entire journey. And so if I do these recaps every now and then, it's very helpful for them because then they can just hop right in and they can join us on this journey going through this gospel. And then maybe if they're intrigued, they can go back and watch the other stuff, right? But I don't want them to have to go watch all those hours of material. If they want to hop in right here, they can hop in right here. And so if I do these recaps, that's also useful. And then that leads us to the third reason, repetition is key, right? The more that I repeat this stuff, the more likely it is that you are going to retain the information. And my whole thing with this YouTube channel is I don't want to just feed you information. I want this to be as best I can make it. I want it to be a discipleship opportunity, right? I know that I don't know most of y'all who are watching this video. 
that's okay with me. That's fine. I don't need to know you, but I still feel like I owe it to God to try to make this as much discipleship as possible. And so I don't want to just feed you this information. I want to make it so that the word of God, if at all possible, as best I can help, is planted in your heart so that it can stay there and it can help you grow, right? And so if I have to repeat it, then we're going to do that. And so what I want to do today is I want to look back at Matthew chapter 10, because that's really the section we just finished. And I want to look at how Matthew chapter 10 fits into the gospel of Matthew as a whole. But in order to do that, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to also look at the other stuff that we've talked about in the previous chapters. And so let's recap. Really, um, one thing that we've talked about in the gospel of Matthew is that the way that it seems to be structured, especially until you get into the passion narratives, um, in the earlier parts of the gospel of Matthew, until the passion narrative part, you really have a like five sets of narratives and discourses, right? So it's narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, right? You have a series of stories followed by some sort of speech or teaching on the part of Jesus. A series of stories followed by teachings on the part of Jesus, right? This is how the whole book is structured. And the first set of narratives and discourses is Matthew chapters one through seven. And another thing that I've been talking about in this whole gospel of Matthew is that it seems like one of Matthew's key goals is he is framing the story of Jesus in a way that is reflective of the history of Israel as we find it in the Hebrew scriptures, right? We talked about how Matthew's original audience was a Jewish audience, and Matthew's main goal in his gospel is to argue that Jesus is the messianic king long promised in years past in ancient epochs in the Hebrew scriptures, right? And one way that he is arguing that Jesus is the messianic king is he is actually demonstrating that Jesus, like Jesus himself claims, came to fulfill the law and prophets. And one way that Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets, as he explains in the Sermon on the Mount, is that he is offering the proper interpretation of the law. But another way that he is fulfilling the law and prophets, as Matthew is demonstrating here, as he quotes a lot of prophecies and stuff like that, is he is demonstrating that Jesus himself is living through the story of the law and prophets, but he is succeeding where Israel failed, and he is being faithful where Israel was unfaithful, and he is being in his own person what Israel was always intended to be, right? He is being the image of God made manifest, right? As Israel was supposed to be a city set on a hill, that's what Jesus is being. Jesus is being the light of the world that Israel was always supposed to be. And so Matthew's gospel isn't strictly structured in a chronological manner. If you're looking for something like that, probably go look at the gospel of Luke, right? Luke's a little bit more chronological because he's functioning more as just a strict historian. The gospel of Matthew, though, it has a general level of chronology, but it's more focused on theme, right? And the gospel of Matthew is more structured in a way where Matthew has organized the events in Jesus' life to reflect the events in Israel's history as you read it, if you're reading from Genesis through Chronicles in the Torah. And why I say Genesis through Chronicles is because you have to remember that the Hebrew scriptures back in the day, uh, and even to this day, the Hebrew scriptures are organized a little bit differently than how we structure our Old Testament and Christian circles, right? They, they have the same books, but they organize them a little bit differently. And so whenever you're actually reading the Gospel of Matthew, you are seeing Jesus literally live out Israel's history, and he is just doing it unto perfection. So in that first narrative section, chapters 1 through 4, we actually get to see what I said is Matthew authenticating Jesus, right? He is demonstrating that Jesus has the necessary credentials to be the Messiah. And so in that section, he is quoting all these prophecies to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. But if you actually focus on the details that he shares and the story that he shares along the way in Matthew chapters one through four, you actually get to see that he's making an argument that Jesus is the true Israel, 
right? He is born by God. He is delivered by a dreamer named Joseph. He is called out of Egypt. He is baptized into the sea, just like Israel exited through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And he goes out and is tempted in the wilderness, just like Israel. Right? And so if you actually look at Matthew chapters 1 through 4, you see really the story of Genesis and the story of Exodus chapters 1 through 20 playing out really just beat by beat in Jesus' life. And it's actually just a really beautiful thing. And to me, the more I talk about it, the more excited I get. And if you want me to go more in depth than that, you can actually go look at the other videos. But hopefully just summarizing it like that, you understand what I'm getting at. And then you get to the first discourse section, right? And this is the famous Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever delivered. And in this section, this is what I call the authority of the king. And that's because here, after having demonstrated that Jesus is the Messiah, Matthew allows us to see what exactly Jesus is made of. And so just like Moses ascending the mountain to receive the law from God in the wilderness, Jesus ascends a mountain and he begins to interpret the law for Israel, right? And by the time you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everybody is amazed. And the reason why they're amazed is not because Jesus is teaching anything new, but it's because of the authority he claims to have as he teaches it. He is not teaching like a scribe and a Pharisee. He is teaching as if he is Yahweh himself delivering the law. And so what Matthew is portraying Jesus as in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is Jesus is the new Moses, right? He is declaring God's law from the top of the mountain. But in another way, he's not simply the new Moses. He actually is Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, speaking forth the law and giving it a proper interpretation, right? So on one hand, he's Moses delivering the law, but on the other hand, he is Yahweh giving the law itself and helping explain what Yahweh's heart behind it was, right? And so if you're looking at Matthew chapters 1 through 7, really you're still looking at the Torah section of scripture, right? You're looking at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it turns out that whenever you actually go into the next section, the next narrative section, you're continuing with that Torah mentality, right? Because whenever you get into chapters 8 and 9, this is the section that I called the miracles of the king. What we have is we have even further subsections, right? So chapters 8 and 9 is really split into three subsections, each of which contains three miracles followed by a little section of teaching, which we can best describe as just like a call to discipleship, right? So there's three miracles, call to discipleship, three miracles, call to discipleship, three miracles, call to discipleship. That's how chapters eight and nine is structured. But if you actually go to that third section, there's three miracle stories, but one of those miracle stories is actually two different miracles, right? And so if you actually count the number of miracles Jesus performs here, you actually have 10 miracles. And once again, I don't think that this is an accident on Matthew's part, because if you go look in the Torah, there are really two possibilities that Matthew could be alluding to here, right? First off, it could be that he's alluding to the 10 plagues that fell upon the people of Egypt as a result of their sin and their enslavement of the people of Israel. But then on the other hand, there are the 10 rebellions that the people of Israel committed while they were in the wilderness uh, which ultimately resulted in them having to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And it seems like Matthew could be alluding to both of these, right? And so if you go to the 10 plagues, you've got the water to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the pestilence, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, and the death of the firstborn, right? That's in the um, chapters of Exodus. I think it's what chapters like Exodus, maybe eight through 13-ish, right? That's where you have like the 10 plagues, right? Well, you have those right there. And then if you go into the books of Exodus and Numbers, you actually get to see these 10 different rebellions that God calls the people out on, right? And I think that both of these would serve to advance 
Matthew's whole argument here in regards to who exactly Jesus is. Because on one hand, if this is referencing the plagues, well, then we could see that the miracles themselves are almost a reversal of the plagues, right? Because another thing we've talked about how is how Israel in and of itself, like the land of Israel, has almost become a new Egypt in Jesus' time, right? To where back in the Exodus story, Egypt is the one enslaving the people of Israel. Well, now it's the religious leaders who are enslaving the people of Israel through their harsh doctrines and their heavy yokes, right? This is language that's going to eventually come back up in the chapters that we're about to approach. And so Israel has become a new Egypt. And so where God afflicted Egypt with 10 plagues, well, Jesus shows up into this new Egypt and we get to see that he isn't here for wrath, right? He isn't here to afflict them with plagues. He's here to restore. And so instead of afflicting them with plagues, he actually restores them with miracles. And so what Jesus is doing is he steps into this new Egypt and he engages in a recreation of Israel, right? It's almost like a foreshadowing of the restoration that's going to come at the end of the book of Revelation, right? Where God is making all things new. That's kind of what Jesus is doing. He steps into Israel and he starts planting little pockets of heaven everywhere he goes. And he is helping make Israel as it was always intended to be. Right? And so if you're comparing this to the plagues, that's the message that Matthew is arguing. But if you compare it to the wilderness testings, well, Jesus shows up and he is helping Israel learn to be faithful where Israel once rebelled. Right? And so if Jesus is the new Israel, he is being faithful to God and he is miraculously helping heal Israel. Whereas the original Israel, the people in the wilderness generation, they were being unfaithful to God and they actually hurt Israel by sentencing them to 40 years in the wilderness, right? And so I think that Matthew's really kind of alluding to both of these. And either way, it's still consistent with that we're still in that Torah section where we're still dealing with Exodus motifs and stuff like that. And so what ultimately Matthew would be arguing here is that if this is being parallel with the 10 plagues, Jesus is the greater Moses bringing miracles of revival rather than destruction and delivering Israel from the Egypt that Israel has become, right? So that's if it's parallel with the 10 plagues. If it's parallel with the ten rebellions, then Jesus is the greater Israel who comes into the wilderness of this world and teaches Israel to trust God rather than to test him. And I wouldn't put it past Matthew to allude to both of those, right? We talked about how the Sermon on the Mount really kind of spanned Exodus chapter 20 through the end of Deuteronomy. It's the entire law. And so I don't think that it should surprise us that he would be able to allude to both of these because we're still dealing with the Torah as a whole, right? That being said... Now that we finished chapters 8 and 9, we covered in chapter 10 what we just finished. We just covered the new discourse section, right? Our second big discourse section. And we flowed from the miracles of the king into the mission of the king. And this is where Jesus gets his 12 disciples together and he sends them out to go into the people, like to go to the people of Israel and to basically preach the kingdom of God. But if you want to understand exactly what this is parallel to, I think that Matthew actually makes this very easy for us. Because if you go to the end of Matthew chapter 9, at that very last call to discipleship moment that feeds into Matthew chapter 10, this is what we read. And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Remember that phrase, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Okay, so at the end of Matthew ch chapter 9, after Jesus performed all these miracles, after he's performed these 10 acts, 
and then he's calling people to discipleship. He looks out at all the crowds gathering and he says the harvest is plentiful and the worker is workers are few. And he realizes that people need to go and take care of the harvest, right? And Jesus feels compassion on the people because he looks at them and he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. And this is where Matthew helps us out and he helps us interpret his book itself because the language that Matthew uses right here is directly taken from the Torah and it will help us understand exactly what this mission of the king is supposed to parallel when it comes to the history of Israel. If you go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 27, this is what we read. Then Moses spoke to Yahweh, saying, May Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of Yahweh will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. It's the same language. So Yahweh said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him, and you shall put some of your splendor on him, in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So Moses did just this as Yahweh commanded him. Right? So this is where if you understand what's going on in the book of Numbers, you'll understand what's going on in the book of Matthew. Right? So in the book of Numbers, Moses knows that he is not going to lead the people into the promised land because he committed a sin and as punishment, he's not going to get to go in the promised land. Right? But Moses, he's a good leader and he doesn't want the people to be like sheep without a shepherd. And so he looks to God and because he knows that he will not be there with the people to guide them into the kingdom, he says, God, we need to appoint somebody else. I need to confer my authority onto another man who can lead the people into the kingdom so that they can have a shepherd to guide them even in my absence. And God says, okay, well, let's take Joshua, son of Nun, your right-hand man, your attendant, your disciple, take him, confer your authority upon him, and he will lead the people into the kingdom, right? Into the promised land. Well, Jesus is in the same place, right? But once again, Jesus is the greater Moses. So he is also not going into the metaphorical promised land. He's not going into the kingdom at this time period, but it's not because he sinned. It's because he is going to depart and go be with the father, right? Jesus recognizes that he is only going to have a very short ministry. He's only going to be here for three and a half years, and then he's going to die. He's going to resurrect. He's going to ascend to the father, and he's not going to be here to really see the church established. And so what Jesus is saying is the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. I need to, like Moses, confer my authority on one of my disciples, on one of my attendants, so that they can lead the people into the kingdom, even in my absence, right? And so who does he call forward? He calls forward the 12 apostles. And that's what we read starting in Matthew chapter 10, right? So in Matthew chapter 10, what does Jesus do? In order to rectify this whole sheep without a shepherd thing, he calls forth 12 apostles people who he names apostles. And at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 10, we read the names of those apostles. And then Jesus begins to explain to them that he is giving them authority. And he tells them who exactly he, they're going to. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. I want you to go to the people of Israel. And so what we see just because, like just because that language, sheep without a shepherd, right? Matthew is alluding back to numbers and he's teaching us to interpret his gospel, right? And what we see that Matthew's doing here is that the apostles like Joshua, are given authority to succeed Jesus, the new Moses, once he departs, right? So once Jesus leaves, the apostles are going to be the de facto authority in the church, right? They go into the land of Israel, or 
in Joshua's case, the land of Canaan, right? It's the same land, right? So they go into the land of Israel to carry on a new conquest, right? A conquest not of sword and shield, but a conquest of spirit and of truth, right? They go out and they go about a new conquest and the true Israel will walk in obedience to them. So what the apostles are being sent out to do on this mission right here, it's a foretaste of what they're going to do after Jesus departs. But whenever Jesus departs, he's going to tell them to go beyond Israel and they're going to go to all the nations, but that's in Matthew chapter 28. I don't want to get too ahead of us. But what's happening here is that they're going out and they are making an Israel within Israel, right? They are helping lead a new exodus out of the Egypt that Israel has become, right? They're going out into the land of Canaan and the conquest that they're engaging in is not a conquest where they're toppling Jericho and they're battling all these different cities, Instead, what they're doing is they are battling the spiritual forces of the air, the cosmic forces of sin, and they are going and they are preaching the good news to the people who need to hear it, and they are creating an Israel within Israel, an Israel in exile, an Israel in exile not because of sin, but an Israel in exile because of the terrible thing that the current Israel has become, right? That's what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 10. And so, really, what we see here is that in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is, once again, the new Moses, sending his apostles, comparable to both the 12 spies and the 12 tribes, right? So, you have the 12 spies who went in to spy out the land of Canaan, and you have the 12 tribes who actually went in to conquer the land of Canaan. Well, Jesus is the new Moses, sending his apostles into the land for a new conquest to produce a new Israel from the, land, from the Canaan that Israel has become, right? So, not only is Israel a new Egypt, Israel is a new Canaan, right? They might not be bowing down to Baal and Ashtaroth, but they've created idols of their own self-righteousness. They've created other idols that need to be toppled. And what Jesus is sending his 12 apostles in to do is they're spying out the land right now so that after he departs, they can go and they can conquer not only this land, but the entire world. And they can turn the entire world upside down. So that's exactly what we see Matthew uh, trying to communicate in chapter 10 right? And that's what we just finished. And so now we have to ask what we're going to see going forward. And if you're tracking with us, we've kind of arrived at that moment that is the end of the Torah, right? So we've gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The way Deuteronomy ends is with basically Moses commissioning the new generation to go into the promised land and conquer it. And so if we just saw the apostles going out into the land to begin spreading the gospel, well, that would kind of encapsulate the book of Joshua, right? So if you're just tracking with the logical flow of the Hebrew scriptures, going forward, we are going to begin to see a transition comparable to that of the time periods that we see in the book of Judges and the United Monarchy under King Saul, King David, and Solomon. And so as we go into Matthew chapters 11, 12, and 13, starting next week, don't be surprised whenever you start seeing more references to David and Solomon showing up right? That's exactly what Matthew is doing. It's very intentional on his part, right? And I think that you have to understand this if you want to understand the underlying thematic things, right? Like, this is why I'm trying to emphasize this stuff, right? Because you can understand the gospel of Matthew if you just, like, read each story individually, right? You can get the basic thing, but you have so much more depth if you actually are tracking with Matthew's overall argument. And this is one thing that as Gentiles we don't really pick up on, right? Because a lot of the times in our Christian churches, we spend so much time studying the New Testament that we're not that familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and we're not that familiar with the Old Testament. And so this stuff usually just goes over our heads, right? But 
a Jewish audience, Matthew's original Jewish audience, they would not have missed this stuff because the language he is using is so similar to stuff they would be reading in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, right? Matthew is clearly alluding to this stuff and it's absolutely brilliant. And so we're going to be going into the period of the judges in the United Monarchy, but at the same time, I don't want you to think that the Exodus and conquest are totally over. Those themes are actually going to be themes that carry with us going forward into the rest of the book, right? The rest of the Gospel of Matthew is still going to carry those Exodus and conquest themes. Uh, and I think that's also because Exodus and conquest themes are prevalent throughout the Hebrew scriptures as well. Constantly throughout the prophets, the prophets are foretelling a future second exodus and a future second conquest, right? They're talking about the day of the Lord. They're talking about the day of judgment. They're talking about the captives being freed, right? And so the exodus and conquest are the key events in the entire historical story of the Jewish people. And so we're still going to see those themes with us, going with us through the rest of the book. And so Matthew really is presenting Jesus as leading a new exodus, right? He is the greater Moses, he is the greater Joshua. He is literally Yahweh in the flesh. He is the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire leading the people into the promised land. And so where we find ourselves heading starting next week is we're going to be going into chapters 11, 12, and 13. What I call this whole section, this is our next narrative and discourse section. Uh, this is what I call the reception and the rejection of the king. And that's because what we're going to see starting in these chapters is we're going to see a lot of people who flock to Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus rising even higher to the height of his popularity. At the same time, as his popularity increases, we're going to see more and more people oppose him, right? So people are going to receive him and people are going to reject him, right? So it's the reception and the rejection of the king. And we're going to have two sections in here. Once again, it's going to be narrative and it's going to be discourse. The narrative section is going to be the practices of the king. And then we're going to have the discourse section, which is the parables, right? The narrative section, uh, the practices of the king, that's going to be chapters 11 and 12 primarily. And what we're going to see here is that as Jesus grows in popularity, his rejection is going to increase, like I just said a second ago, right? We're going to see the things that Jesus practices, the things that Jesus goes about doing. And as this story unfolds, we're going to see that he's going to be re rejected by his people. He's going to be rejected by his leaders. And we're even going to see him be rejected by his own family, right? So it's going to get more and more intimate, right? It's not just random people who are rejecting him, but the religious leaders are rejecting him. The people who should know the Messiah more than anybody, they're going to reject him. And then it's not only them, his family, his brothers, right? His own family turns against him and they start rejecting Jesus. That's going to like that's going to flow directly into the parable section, right? The discourse. Because as a result of the growing rejection, what Jesus is going to do is he is going to do what the prophets did in the Hebrew scriptures. And he's even going to quote the book of Isaiah whenever he explains why he tells parables. He's going to tell people parables to confuse them, right? So, in, so that though they have ears, they will not hear. And that so that though they have eyes, they will not see, right? And so Jesus is going to be rejected by the people. And in light of their rejection, he is going to begin to conceal his message. And he's going to begin teaching in forms of parables in order to confuse the people right? And these parables are going to be describing the nature of the kingdom. And once again, that is going to be very comparable to what we see in the books of the prophets, right? Because the prophets are always talking about this kingdom, but they're talking to people who have ears but do not hear and eyes and do not see, right? And so that's really where we're heading with this whole thing. And so I'm really excited for it. I hope that these recaps are very helpful for you because to me, I find them very helpful um, just so that as I'm teaching through this, I'm not losing sight of where we're heading. 
Uh, and I'm hoping that once again, it's taking this whole gospel of Matthew and it is really just drilling it into your head so that you don't lose sight of it either, because I absolutely love what Matthew is doing with this gospel. Um, you know, I, I've always historically said that like the gospel of John is my favorite gospel, but the more we go through the gospel of Matthew, the more I'm falling in love with it. And I hope that the same thing is happening with you as well. And so Lord willing, we will be, I mean, something could always change and stuff like that, but Lord willing, we will be back next week and we'll be hopping into Matthew chapter 11. We'll be hopping into another set of narrative um, stuff and we'll just see more stories involving Jesus. And unfortunately with that, we are going to see more rejection, but I hope that you're not the one rejecting Jesus. I hope that you're just believing in him with all you got. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for just um, hanging with me here. And um, for those of y'all who are watching on YouTube, thank you for dealing with my whole eye thing. I really do appreciate your patience. Um, have a great day. Keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are. And of course, Maranatha.